Welcome, everybody, to Speakeasy Issue 2. Put theme music here. All right, so uh, for those who missed Speakeasy 1, this is uh, an extra podcast that we put out every now and then. No script. We just kind of wing it and uh, maybe play you a few pieces of tape that you haven't heard before on the Dinner Party download. And we are going to start today with a rather timely story with which Brendan regaled our crew at our morning meeting today. So I was conducting an interview at the Chateau Marmont, the storied old hotel in uh, Hollywood, California, yep. which was then bought by the Blas Group and made to be retro cool, but still is cool <laughs> somehow. And uh, I was interviewing a woman who, Sarah, I'm spacing her name, Sarah something, but she wrote a book about art, Seven Days in the Art World, and she was having a book launch, and I conducted the interview with her around the pool. Sounds very glamorous. It was. That's not how most Interparty Download interviews go. <laughs> I chatted with her, and then afterwards, she's like, stick around for the book party. So I'm hanging out. It's a beautiful room. There's hors d'oeuvres. There's uh, wine flowing, and I see this guy standing there with kind of gray hair. He's short. He's a little squat. And uh, I should throw in, this was probably like six or seven years ago, but go ahead. Uh, older gentleman. Older gentleman, Yes. How did you, you, it's like you were there. Oh, you've told me the story. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. Yes. He was an older gentleman. I and, know where uh, this is going. And I started talking with him. Hey, where are you from? And he's like, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Topanga Canyon. And I was like, oh, interesting. I'm from Philadelphia. And he said, Philadelphia? He's like, oh, I've been working with a, a museum up there called the Fabric Arts Workshop. Mm. And I was like, really? What are you doing with them? He's like, I have this, <laughs> I gave them this idea. I'd like them to execute for me, but we have, they haven't done it yet. We haven't figured it out. Uh, the idea is I want them to make an American flag that's burning all the time. <laughs> I was like, wow, man, that is really cool. That's heavy for an older guy. <laughs> yeah, this is way more, in- this is the conversation got a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to. And then we chat a little bit more. He's like, when did you move here, this and that? And then I, I peeled away and I was like, oh, by the way, what's your name? He's like, oh, I'm Chris Burden. Mm-hmm. And so I went home, I drove my little Honda Civic to this bungalow compound I was living in, and my friend Annie, who went to art school, uh, was working in her little jewelry shop making jewelry, and I was telling her about this cool guy I met and this interesting idea, and uh, and I said, his name is Chris Burden, and she's like, "Yeah, you're an idiot. <laughs> Chris Burden is one of the greatest living American artists, yeah. and you just met him, and, and you had no idea. <laughs> and I was a little embarrassed. Yes, uh, as I, the host of a show about arts and culture. <laughs> but I was aware of some of his work when she said he's the guy who did the, you know, was crucified on a Volkswagen Beetle, etc. But the name, it, I couldn't imagine I was going to be talking to this guy that of night. Of course not. And it, people, of course, the reason why we're telling you this story on the show today is because, sadly, if you didn't know, Chris Burden passed away on Sunday, May 10th. He was 69 years old. He died of complications Mm -hmm. from melanoma. Some of the pieces that he was known for in the 1970s, he really came to prominence as a performance artist. He did a performance piece called Shoot, where he had somebody shoot him in the arm in a gallery. Yes. He actually bought time on Los Angeles television to suddenly air this video of him crawling through broken glass. Uh, he had a lot of his early stuff was about putting himself through some pretty serious injuries. Yeah. But then later on, he did work that has endeared him to a lot of people, most notably a thing called Urban Light, 
in front of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art that is now one of the most recognizable pieces of public art in the, maybe in the country, definitely in L.A. It's probably on your, well, it's certainly on your Instagram feed this week because of his passing, but that's even right. before that, it's it, uh, such an iconic image of L.A. these days. It's basically a forest of streetlights, these glowing streetlights. They come on at night at about dusk, and it's just totally beautiful, warm light. Everybody takes their picture in front of this thing. He also uh, was known for doing the 65-foot-tall skyscraper made of erector sets called What mm-hmm. My Dad Gave Me in 2008. He was a maximalist towards the end there. Yeah, for sure. Like, very large-scale artworks. Anyway, very luckily, a few years ago, in 2011, uh, we were able to talk to Chris Burden. He was doing a piece called Metropolis 2. Have you seen this, Brendan, by the way? Have you seen I never saw this. I, I heard this interview when you did it. It was It's basically a gigantic slot car track, mm-hmm. and it was being dismantled in his studio in Topanga Canyon to transport it to the L.A. County Museum of Art, a process that was going to take three months, by the way. That's how big this thing is. And I got to go up there and talk to him about it. So here's that interview with a few extra minutes of footage added that we've never aired before. Enjoy. And Chris, welcome. Oh, thank you. And we are here in your studio looking at this thing, which is enormous. Can you kind of describe its dimensions and what it looks like? Yes, its footprint is 20 by 30 feet, approximately. It's about 10 feet high. It looks kind of like a jungle gym of steel tubing and affixed to all these uh, different uh, levels are roadways, railroad tracks, and skyscrapers. When the sculpture is running, 1,100 Hot Wheel-type cars circulate through the whole system at a scale speed of 240 miles an hour. Is there a reason why you picked 240 miles an hour, by the way? No, it was just something we... uh, We tried to make the cars go as fast as we could without having them fly off the roadways, which is... Wonderful. Uh, I look forward to traveling in my car at those speeds. I know. It sounds like the most fun thing that you could do as an artist. It's like, let's see how fast we can get these little cars to go. It's something I've wanted to do since I was four. Yeah, but it's also a model for the future, how fast we could go. If uh, every car was satellite controlled and we all had a digital slot, we could effectively travel 10 times faster on surface streets. Do you want to see that happen? Oh, yes, I do. Absolutely. We take all the stress of uh, commuting away. Or make it incredibly stressful because things would be going so freaking fast. No, no, you would be in a private railroad car. You wouldn't be allowed to accelerate, pass on blind corners, run stop signs. In fact, there wouldn't even be need, need to be uh, traffic signals. The high-speed traffic would weave itself. Like, like, Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Every intersection would just be timed so no car would hit each other, but they could go through and just miss each other. It sounds wonderful. It also, though, I can imagine an art critic saying, that sounds really fascist. It's like, basically, we're not going to have control of our individual cars. We're going to give somebody else the power to decide when and how these things go. Uh, Don't forget your California handbook. Driving is a privilege, not a right. (laughs) (laughs) But this is not the first time you've dealt with vehicles. You Early on in your career, you literally had yourself crucified on a Volkswagen. You've created a, a self-guiding, full-sized boat. What is your interest in returning again and again to vehicles and transportation? Well, I think sort of motion is the salient feature of the Industrial Revolution and, and by extension, the 20th and 21st century. So constant motion, think about how people travel now. It's a lot of my friends are almost constantly in travel mode. 
So I've always sort of been interested in vehicles of all different kinds. Also interested, too, in how national character is somehow reflected in the nature of the machine that's produced. So a German car is different than an Italian car. And why is that? And, of course, Los Angeles is defined by its cars, and you're pretty much a lifelong California resident. Well, that's, I, I didn't grow up here. I, I started living here. I started going to college, to Pomona College. So I, that's when I first started living here. Um, Many decades. Yeah. yeah, I've been here. The most important part. I've been here a long time. And I chose not to go back east, too. And uh, I think the openness of California and the freeways had something to do with that. Because Boston, where I went to high school, it's tight. Whereas here, you get on your motorcycle in college and... You know, you can drive to New Mexico or up to the top of Mount Baldy or, do you know what I'm saying? There's a different uh, feeling of uh, possibility. But here's, interestingly, there's the idea of possibility you just bring up. But also in a lot of these, the machine represented, the vehicle represented is not necessarily all positive. There's kind of a scary side to being impaled on on a Volkswagen, obviously. Well, you know, it's a big question about technology, I think, as to whether it rules us or we rule it. That reminds me of your piece, The Big Wheel, where you basically used a motorcycle to get a gigantic and very frighteningly powerful-looking wheel in motion. Well, it's about uh, how energy is converted, I think. So you have this little Italian motorcycle, and its back wheel is touching this big metal flywheel that weighs three tons. So as you accelerate through the gears, the flywheel is probably going two or 300 RPM. You realize the immense power of it, that if it got loose, if it popped out of its bearings... You know, I, I refer to it as a Neanderthal at- atomic bomb because it would just, uh, it would slice through buildings and buildings and buildings. When I first showed it, you know, I had this vision of it popping out and going through two or three buildings before it came to a stop. Did that give you a little bit of, of pleasure to consider? Well, I think, I think everybody considered, that's why it's both hypnotic and it's repulsive at the same time because it's scary because it's raw energy right there and you're imminently aware of it. And yet, it's really hypnotic. I mean, it's kind of neat. Yeah, it's 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 nice to watch. It's something very uh, soothing about it too. So it has this uh, funny duality. I think we have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first question is: If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Well, I, I I'm not sure you shouldn't ask me, but the thing I think the shoe performance has been asked: What's it like to be shot? And, for those who don't know, in Shoot, you were shot in the arm with a rifle in an art gallery. Does it surprise you that, you know, people wonder about it? It's a very powerful image. No, not at all. It's a dragon that everybody subconsciously has dealt with. What is this this thing of being shot? What is it? You see it depicted in the entertainment industry over and over and over. So what is this dragon? And I think it was a scientific and a philosophical position to, to face it head on. So I don't feel too bad asking, what was it like? It was like a, a Mack Freightliner hitting you in the arm. Our second question is kind of the converse. Tell us something we don't know, either about yourself or the world, that would surprise people at a dinner party. Well, if I had another life to leave, I'd love to be uh, evangelist, the preacher. A preacher? Yeah, a preacher. I think it's a very lucrative feel, and I think the overhead's really low, too. I think you might have a hard time starting that career since you had yourself crucified on a Volkswagen earlier in your life. I don't know. I think uh, if I chose to, I could, but... Why don't you? What's keeping you, man? I'm an artist. (laughs) 
was indeed the consummate artist, and that was Chris Burden, recorded in 2011. Once again, he passed away alas, uh, last Sunday at the age of 69. And I think in that interview, Rico, you can hear the twinkle in his eye that I saw when he was telling me about that American flag that was going to be on fire forever, <laughs> yeah. how he gave these people this impossible task. He had this kind of... Uh, yeah, this uh, devilish kind of glint to his yeah. eye when he was talking about such things. Obviously, he like had the concept in mind. He was a deeply smart guy, but it was also like, I am going to get away with the most yeah. insane stuff. <laughs> there was like was he it. had he had one piece where he actually had this gigantic crane drop a hundred steel beams, huge steel beams, yeah. into wet concrete. Until it looked like the back of like a giant yeah. metal porcupine. Well, I will just one last thing. You mentioned at the top of this piece, uh, uh, his piece called "Shoot." Mm. You know, I remember hearing about that before I met him or didn't know about him again and relearned who he was. <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember being like, "You're a young person trying to wrap your mind around conceptual art." You're like, "Why would someone do that?" And then I moved to L.A. and tried to drive to Venice, California, <laughs> where he was working then. And I was like, "Oh yeah, that's what I'll do it. That's why you'd have someone shoot you." <laughs> All right. Well, Chris Burden, rest in peace wherever you are. And yes. uh, uh, folks, if you're not familiar with Chris Burden, go online. Believe me, there's a lot of stuff to look at out there. Videos, lots of uh, essays about him. And uh, if you're ever out in L.A., you will inevitably end up at Urban Light. All right. Outro music here. Outro music here. 